This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. We're back with the latest Paddock Pass podcast, sheathed by Fly Racing, thanks guys, and guided by the dependable tech from Renthal Street. Not only the most successful handlebar and accessories company in off-road, but also on-road. Uh, don't believe us, as we say always, then just look to World Superbike, where Jonathan Ray is providing some very entertaining fare in that particular world championship. My name is Adam Wheeler. I'm behind the webzine on track offroad.com. I know I'm not allowed to use the word webzine anymore, Dave, so I'll try to avoid it in the future. Uh, of course, on Zoom, sadly we're talking on Zoom because we couldn't manage to get a time to record post-Mugello, uh, is the man in the sun-kissed hat, the terrorizer of, t- of the Twitter ignorant, um, <laughs> and terrorized also by Tiramisu over the last few days, uh, Mr. David Emmett. And of course, we have the sonic tremble of Motor 2 and Motor 3 classes and one of the very few world-class scribes in Moto E. It's our own Mr. Neil Morrison. How are you doing, guys? Uh, very good. I have one question for um, uh, for for the both of you because um, I was just wondering when Neil goes to Phillip Island uh, and is so close to the to the ocean, does that mean that all of a sudden the uh, whales appear off the coast as they hear his sonic rumble go through uh, go through the ground and uh, and through the through the sea? Is it? Are they listening to Moto3 commentary thinking, oh my God, there's a uh, really hot right whale over there. I'm going to go and uh, check her out. <laughs> yeah, they all culminate around uh, the Siberia corner just off the coastline there, Dave. So yeah, that's where you can find me on a Friday night of the Australian Grand Prix. Blowing out of their holes. <laughs> <laughs> of course, no, I mentioned you were one of the best writers in Moto E, but um, you are, of course, as well, one of the best writers in MotoGP. And I know you've had a busy week. Um, Dave, is there anything coming up on motomatters.com for Patreon uh, subscribers or, well, selecting exclusive people that are checking out content on the website? Uh, yes, I've got a uh, interview with uh, Massimo Rivola uh, about, uh, uh, or Rivola, uh, about uh, the tie-in with RNF. Um, I was trying to do that last night, but I was quite tired because it had been a long day traveling. And I've got some stuff from Brembo as well, which is really, really interesting. And there's a bunch of, basically just a bunch of work uh, still go, uh, going on in progress. And you, I think, have got uh, a Gigi Delinia interview coming up soon. Yeah, trying to get that finalized for today. That'll be, uh, you know, the last entry of the May edition of um, OnTrackOffRoad.com. Um, hopefully we'll be up by Tuesday evening. Uh, actually, it'd be good to talk with Brembo coming to the circuit to Catalonia. Some interesting breaking points and, um, and performance needed at that particular circuit. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, uh, the uh, turn one, uh, they're going very, very fast. So, uh, I mean, they'll be running sort of the high mass 340 millimeter discs, which means uh, they've got to dissipate a lot of energy. But the, the thing about Catalonia is there's only really a couple of places where you're braking really, really hard. Uh, there's a lot of flowing corners. So that that makes it a little bit less difficult. It's a place like uh, Austria or Buriram where you've got a really, uh, you know, lots of long straights really hard braking and then a tight corner and then another long straight and a really hard braking it doesn't give the time the um the, the discs time to cool off now what was the international scope of your writing duties this week i'm guessing uk australia anywhere slightly closer to home or uh, anywhere else far flung america you in the united states yeah america and then uh, i believe uh, on your file page your fine pages as well so um Depending on the reach of on track or off road, I guess uh, 
the the words will be coming from there too. So yeah, I'm kind of mildly regretting not putting two uh, shots of uh, espresso in my coffee this morning. Um, it was a long weekend and a late flight back from Italy last night. But um, but yeah, I mean, uh, lots of work to do today. Then free day tomorrow. Then back to back to it on Thursday. So yes, busy busy moment of the season, isn't it? Well, as for the reach of on track off road, uh, my mum will be happy that she'll have some new content to read uh, this evening. So that's uh, very kind of you, Neil. Um, guys, the Grand Prix of Italy, my moment from the weekend um, was actually Aaron Canet's crash in Moda 2 because there was one point where the Spaniard was threatening his countrymen and basically that accident sliding out, uh, thankfully uninjured, allowed Pedro Acosta pretty much enough breathing room to escape to his first victory and complete another milestone on his um very, very fledgling career uh, to greatness. He really is walking a Mark Marquez-style path to the premier class at the moment. Uh, so that was that was my one. Dave, what stood out for you from Mugello? Um, yeah, I mean, just going back to the Pedro Acosta, at the Portimao Moto 2 test, I mean, we said this on the uh, on the night show on Sunday night, uh, at the Portimao Moto 2 test back in February, everyone said, you know, the lad's going to be world champion. And uh, he had a bit of a difficult start, the same as the rest of the season. And now he really seems to have found his feet. And I think this wasn't the last uh, win we're going to see of him this season. He's, you know, he almost won last time out in Le Mans. He's won here. Uh, I think he's about to go on a tear. Um, for me, my moment of the weekend was really just seeing the, 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 the cool down lap and Mark Marquez on the cool down lap. Seeing, I mean, there was an enormous release of pent up emotion. It was actually sort of, reminiscent of uh, after his first race back in Portimao last year uh, when he finally rode a MotoGP bike again after such a long and miserable period. Um, I think that sort of told you so much more. Mark is very good in uh, press conferences at keeping his emotions in check at, uh, at, you know, hiding the way that he really feels about things. And that there... Finally, he'd released himself. You know, he was he was free. He didn't have to worry anymore. He could move on uh, with his life. He can get on with the with the operation and, and try to come back stronger. And all of that just suddenly came out. There was actually a, a decent video on the MotoGP Twitter feed. Well, that's that's where I saw it anyway. Of all the riders, um, I, I don't know what's the word. Not commiserating. Really showing solidarity with Mark on the cooldown lap at Mugello, and I thought that was you know a fantastic touch really because we're talking about a rider that has essentially dominated the class. Um, you know, frustrated rivals. He's had to take tow from half the field. Uh, you know, in qualification, uh, he's had people criticising him. Uh, you know, he's had people extremely jealous of him. There was a, an interesting question by one of our colleagues in the media debrief over, over the weekend about uh, riders forming some sort of union to prevent spiraling pay packets. Um, and Mark admitted that he really wasn't one to lead this kind of movement um, because he is the best paid rider in MotoGP. Uh, so it, he, he, there is a certain humility there. Um, and I guess that was the, the, the root of all that good feeling or the, all those well wishes towards him. Yeah, I mean, he also said that uh, he would be the first one to support any such movement, you know, and he, and he fully backs the idea that people should be, pay, uh, should be paid properly. But the other thing is, I'm like, one of the things about all those riders coming around and sort of just, you know, they were really just giving giving him their best wishes and and you know, hoping that he can come back stronger. And it was clear 
they know how much he has been suffering, but much more than we know. Uh, Mark is very good at hiding things, but you can't hide things out on track on, uh, uh, from riders. So I, I think that was what that was all about. It really showed how, how difficult a time he's had. Just before we come to your moment from Mugello, Neil, a little bit of trivia for you, which I'm sure you're going to like flash straight away. Acosta won in his eighth Grand Prix in Moto2. Is there any other riders in recent memory that have gone straight into Moto2, won in their debut year and perhaps vaulted straight out of the class? I mean, we know very well the riders who have skipped Moto2 altogether. Um, Joan Mir finished on the podium, but I don't think he won a race. So who, who are we looking at maybe in the debut season to achieve that? Um, Mark Marquez, Maverick Vinales won his second race, Alex Rins. Um, Rins was in his debut season? Yeah, I think Rins ran away in his debut. I think he won two races in his debut season. And I'm trying to think of other ones. But yeah, there's not a great deal of uh, of riders that have stepped straight up from Model 2. Sorry, straight up from Model 3 and gone into Model 2 and won in the, in the rookie season. So, you know, I think that is an achievement in itself. Um but yeah, I'm sure there's one or two others that I'm, I'm missing here, and the the listeners probably shouting at their um, their device as uh, <laughs> uh, as I kind of uh, lurch between names. But yeah, I think those were definitely yeah, Rins, Maverick, Mark. I think we were definitely guys that won in their rookie years. Good company. <laughs> Good question: Should Pedro Acosta go MotoGP next year? No, 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 no. If anything, because the opportunity. If anything, because the opportunity is not there. You know, I mean, does he do a Mark Marquez style straight into you know a Repsol Honda factory seat? Yeah, I mean, he has um, to go to a, he has to go to a factory team. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, I would like to see him. I think um, uh, he, he would certainly learn. There's nothing to lose from doing another year, but I think he should go. But anyway, just a quick straw poll. <laughs> I think he has to win the. I mean, win the championship is one thing. I mean, a rider can spend three or four years trying to win a championship due to either injury or bad luck or. You know, um, you know, any kind of stroke of misfortune. So I think saying you must win the championship before you step up is is a little bit too much to ask. You have to fight but, for one, you know, though. If, yeah, if you're talking about a rate of education, then, you know, I think he needs at least a full season or two. Purely also just from a physical viewpoint. What was he, Neil? 17, 18, 18, just 18 years old, of course, just before Mugello. So, you know, is an 18-year-old really going to have the, the physical... I don't know, build or power to handle a MotoGP bike? It's another question. Also, let KTM sort out their MotoGP bike. Um, it doesn't look like a lot of fun for a rookie coming up aboard a KTM at the moment. Just look at, uh, just ask Remy Gardner. Yeah, but then what bike do you jump on? Perhaps it would have to be a Ducati because before it was seen, Yamaha was seen as the easiest way in. And Darren Binder is perhaps showing that, you know, the bike is still good for learning in and, and posting respectable results. But anyway, we digress now. What what kind of uh, was your moment from, um, from Italy? Uh, well, I mean, I, I might choose two moments, but they both involve the same rider doing something to riders from the same team. And um, basically it was uh, Fabio Quattararo's uh, performance in the first, well, all the race really was was quite remarkable. But um, I'm going to have to plump for his moves on the two VR46 Ducatis. Um, I mean, the first, I think, five or six laps, it was basically Fabio single-handedly uh, going up against four Ducati riders in Bagnaia, uh, Marini, Bezecchi, and De Gian Antonio. Um, and it was just, uh, it was kind of awe-inspiring to watch um, around Mugello's curbs. And some of the overtaking maneuvers that he managed were sensationally good um i think his move on marini at savelli was just wonderful 
um, especially as he had been passed there previously by Alice Spargo in the first lap. And then he put a wonderful move on Bezeki at Scarperia, which is just after the second Arabiata corner. And considering we've been a little frustrated watching racing in Jerez and uh, Le Mans as of late, it was wonderful to see a contest where um, riders could be super creative with their overtaking once more. And it wasn't just there's only one place on the track where they can do it or they have to wait for a mistake. You could see basically Fabio riding out of his skin and, um, you know, coming up with some real incisive, creative uh, moves to make his way um, almost to the head of that Ducati fight. So I thought, um, yeah, I thought that was just wonderful to watch. I mean, it's worth pointing out, I put this on Twitter as well, Fabio Quartararo has 122 points and the other three Yamaha riders combined have 33 points. And it tells you just how good Fabio is uh, at the moment. Now, there's lots of reasons why the others are not sort of scoring particularly well, um, but Fabio was just a bit exceptional. And the, the way, I mean, he said afterwards that this was his best race of the season and it was... Or I think he's one of the best races of his career, and it was just an outstanding riding. He really is riding absolutely out of his skin. He won in Mugello last year. Uh, the race time was a couple of seconds slower, as we know. Do I mean, he's had some amazing races over the last year. I mean, it's only kind of less than two years ago where we were questioning the mental fortitude of this rider. Um, but, you know, he's he's really is. I think, Neil, you said on the Paddock Pass podcast note show uh, that we put on Patreon after each day at the Grand Prix that he's just reaching a Marquez-esque level of performance or certainly uh, with a combination with the Yamaha, which we know is not the the most ideal motorcycle to be competing in with MotoGP at the moment. Yeah, I mean, he is uh, he is approaching those levels with uh, with Yamaha. I mean, Dave mentioned about the uh, the points of the other riders. I mean, it was a horrible Grand Prix for his team at Morbidelli. It was a horrible race for Andrea De Vizioso. He looked genuinely uh, ready to just throw the whole thing in in his debrief with us after the race. Um, um, yeah, and 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 you know, I think what Quartararo is doing now is is more impressive than if he had uh, a bike that was, was semi-functional on the on the straights and, and, and you know, had decent top speed because, um, yes, he's obviously been very frustrated. And we've heard that from in the garage, he can sometimes still be a bit too emotional. However, we haven't seen any evidence so far this year of him throwing the white flag out. He is pushing that bike to its absolute limits every single race weekend. And you get the distinct impression that he is getting the absolute most out of it in every race we've had this year. Um, and I always think it's just it's it's great to watch that because you, you I think you can tell a lot more about a rider in their their tough moments than in their good moments. And you know this is a tough moment for Yamaha and Fabio still leading the championship. So you know chapeau. I do want to point out that we when we're at the track we are asking why this is happening and why this is going on. Why Yamaha have one rider who's fighting for Grand Prix wins against a fleet of Ducatis and. You, okay, we'll give Darren Binder a pass because he's still learning the trade and he actually had a very good Grand Prix through 23 laps, like we said, in Mugello. But for um, uh, a rider with the experience of Andrea De Vizioso um, and also Franco Morbidelli and his capabilities, I mean, it was only, what, two years ago that he was, you know, fighting inside the top three of the World Championship. We are asking why there is this discrepancy. But it seems even the riders, you know, like you said, Neil, Morbidelli has the air of, I, I can't figure this out. I'm tired of trying to explain how I'm trying to figure this out. Um, and Andrea De Bizioso as well has this same kind of weariness about him. Uh, it, for fans who are just looking at the result sheet thinking, why, what's going on? I'm not too sure what else we can do as, as reporters to, to say, to explain it. 
there was an well, we had an interesting conversation with Peter Bomb, the uh, guest on here, uh, former crew chief, um, incredibly big-brained person, <laughs> um, and he, he was saying because one of the again one of the interesting thing is is that Fabio Quattararo chose the hard front. Um, previously, I mean, you know, all the way up till about sort of 2020, 2021, uh, the Yamahas always went for a soft front tire because they, they needed the grip more than they needed the support because the way they make the, uh, um, make their lap time is, you know, with corner speed. Um, but what appears to have happened is that, uh, aerodynamics, but above all, the ride height devices are changing the dynamics of the front tire. Uh, they're really putting a lot more stress in the front tire because of the way that they are allowing riders, especially, to brake so much harder. Um, and the, the, the Ducati have spent a lot of time and invested a lot of energy in figuring out because obviously you know they invented these things but they've they've spent a lot of time figuring out how to optimize them and so you're seeing the ducatis run you know softer front tires um because they know how to be um, much more gentle with the with the front and also if you see their their if you see the rear of the front of the ride height device come up it's ever it's so smooth it's almost imperceptible you can't you sort of look and then all those oh ah right no it is it's down now but you don't actually see it move whereas the the other bikes, especially uh, the Honda, the or especially the Yamaha and the Suzuki, uh, you can visibly see the thing drop. Um, the other thing is, I mean, they spend time doing things like preheating the uh, uh, the, the hydraulic cylinder. Before the bike goes out of the garage, they put a little uh, a little hot air blower up there to get it up to temperature because it's sitting right next to the exhaust and it gets hot. And so you you, you want to go out and have it have that have it have that consistent feel. So it's uh, the, the, all of these like little bits and bobs where the riders are spending a huge amount of time, or the the, the factory is spending a huge amount of time optimizing this. And this is one of the things which is uh, you know causing. Uh, it's causing problems for Yamaha in unexpected areas. I think it's also, it's incredibly complex psychologically, Dave, because riders are trying to look for tenths, not for seconds. Uh, and if you say, if we look at Morbidelli, then, you know, there, there's a rider there who may be riding better than ever. Or for a sequence of Grand Prix this year, he must have felt his performance level was as high as it's ever been. But the results weren't coming, and now perhaps he's in some sort of funk or some kind of, kind of spiral to, to really rectify the situation. Um, and while he's scoring 14th, 15th, 16th positions, uh, it's, not, it's not helping. Um, he's trying to find just a marginal, marginal, marginal gain or difference to enable him to, to make his way up the grid. It's not coming. People are asking questions about his contracts, his future. It's just one big ball that happens so quickly. It's a space of, you know, the season started, what, three months ago? It's, um, it's, it's, I, I find it quite mind-boggling, really. And it's just a, it's such a shame that there isn't a clear reason for it, and the guys can't get themselves out of a rut. Yeah, yeah, no, completely. And can I just add? Uh, this has been annoying me. Uh, Andrea Iannone was also a winner in his debut uh, Model Two season, so we'll add that one to the list from earlier on. Iannone was actually in Mugello as well, wasn't he? Um, is he still a rider manager? Which is of great concern to me, considering one of his. Um, one of his clients was uh, Romano Fernati, who's now no, lo no longer employed. If he is, it's not been going well. <laughs> <laughs> 
the Noah Morrison da- damning verdict of performance. Guys, so we're, we're a couple of days away from the Grand Prix of Catalonia. And, you know, I feel we should just wrap Mugello overall. Uh, we, Neil, you're in Le Mans. Dave and I didn't go. Um, understandably, the circuit was very busy. The atmosphere was great, as it usually is at that Grand Prix. Uh, I say understandably because MotoGP has a French world champion, of course. Um, Fabio Quartararo is uh, very symbolic, emblematic, whatever you want to say. Uh, you know, there's a good reason why fans will go out to to see him race. Uh, we came to Mugello, where arguably the biggest star in two decades of the sport was not there uh, in an active capacity. He was there to, of course, retire his number, which he looked a little bemused about, to be honest. Um you know, there was quite a nice ceremony on Saturday as Rossi picked up a, a 46 styled um, piece of silverware to go inside the vault. And I'm sure he has at home of all the other trophies. But, you know, Michello to me felt like it had an atmosphere, but it felt much smaller. Uh, the attendance officially, uh, however much value you want to place in these figures, was the half. Uh, what were the reasons? Rossi wasn't there. I mean, are Italian fans really going to miss out on the spectacle of Mugello purely because one rider isn't competing? Uh, ticket prices, another reason also potentially. But I looked around a little bit on the subject of the ticket prices. And I know this is perhaps not the most accurate barometer because, you know, you do have early ticket price discounts and offers on websites. So, but just to give you um, a ballpark figure, uh, it would have cost 90 euros to get into Mugello to sit on the grass bank. Uh, you know, of course, if you want to go into a grandstand, you're going to be paying hundreds of euros, just as you would in any music concert or any theatre show. If you this, want to sit in box seats, then you're not paying to sit in the stalls or, or for at the back. Sorry, Dave. This is just a one-day ticket, yes? This is just for, just for the Sunday? Yeah, the Prato, which yeah. I guess this means, yeah, you know, general public enclosure. Um, the same ticket was 70 euros in Hereth. Uh, in Silverstone, you're going to be paying £80 uh, on the door. I, I think it'll probably be more. But if you pay in advance, you're paying £80. If you're going to Saxon Ring, the same entry-level ticket would be €120. Euros. And then Mizano, crucially, later in the season, at the moment on the website, is €96. Euros. So Mugello, you could say, was not extortionate for a public entry ticket. But then what I don't have a reference is of 2019, which, of course, was... <laughs> You know, still quite some distance uh, ago and what was going on in the world as well with the economy and the geopolitical landscape and whatever else. Um, you know, for sure, money's a factor in the reason why there were less people. But I just wonder if it was the, to pick a cliche, the straw that broke, broke the camel's back. I mean, did we enjoy Mugello other than the fact that, you know, we could get into the track rather easily and there wasn't, there was less people to run over on the very small entry road in? I mean, I did, I really had to try my best to actually knock, uh, knock them over. But uh, uh, no, I mean, um, and also, can I just uh, say that I um, also picked up some hitchhiking fans and drove them into the circuit. So I did my good deed uh, for the decade. So that's me done. Um, I, it's It's really, really complicated. First of all, I think um, it's difficult to compare different tracks also because there's going to be some tracks where uh, people are still on their refunded tickets from uh, pre-pandemic. Basically, people are still going to be able to get in. So, for example, Saxon Ring, um, there are still going to be people. Assen uh, as well. Assen uh, partially, but there were a bunch of people, there were a bunch of fans who got there, I think, because the attendance, I think, last year was around 30,000, I think, uh, limited, restricted to 30,000. Um, and they, uh, so that that sort of tranche of tickets has gone out. Um, and there'll be another tranche of, you know, 
70 or 80,000 who will be able to uh, get a refund on their on their ticket. So that's going to make comparisons very difficult. Mugello, there was none of that. You basically had to pay the money to uh, to get in. Um, also, Mugello is a race where you don't you don't buy a one day ticket. The uh, generally, you know, it's like a three day thing. You go camping for the weekend and you camp actually inside the. Uh, inside the track. There are other tracks like Saxon Ring, for example. Um, there are campsites. Saxon Ring, Aston is the same. Uh, Lamar is also the same. Um, you camp next to or outside of the track. So it's, it's different. You can, it's much easier to actually turn up sort of, uh, just for the Friday or just for the Saturday and Sunday or just for the Sunday. Uh, especially a track like Aston, which has got just outstanding public transport links. So you can, you can literally get the train from Amsterdam in the morning, um, uh, get on a bus and be in the uh, be in the grandstands for sort of you know for for warm up so yeah Mugello is much much more difficult to reach so there's that there's the financial side which you know like global economic crisis and yes Valentino Rossi the, the absence of Valentino Rossi because Mugello really was um, you know it really was yellow it really was the home of Valentino Rossi yeah, it's a good point about the color of Michello, um, Dave. But, you know, also on the other side, Ducati have won four times in the last five years, three of those with three different Italian riders. I mean, if there's anything to whip up the Italian motorcycle or MotoGP fans, then it's going to be those kind of sights. Neil, do you think, you know, what was your kind of feeling of being in Michello? Did you feel, because you were also working there, of course, in the lockdown when the place was completely empty. Uh, it, should we be worried for the for the future of this race if they're just going to be attracting you know sub fifty thousand attendances on a Sunday? I mean, it wasn't. I think it was seventy four thousand on uh, over the three days. Yeah, I guess what was it forty thousand around thereabouts? For, forty three on Sunday. Forty three on, on Sunday. I mean, it's not um, it's not completely empty. Um, I think there have been one or two tracks this year we've gone to where the the attendance has been slightly underwhelming. But we've also been to tracks where you come away and think, wow, that was quite a good atmosphere today. It wasn't that great to see the fans back making a bit of a a ruckus noise like Jerez. Argentina was like that, uh, like Le Mans was certainly like that. And, you know, we've got a couple of races coming up where um, we're expecting huge attendances as well. Like uh, I think we can we can expect that of the Saxon Ring and Dave. You've certainly been saying that Assen is uh, is on course to have about a hundred thousand people there over the weekend at least. So um, I think, as Dave said, Mugello is very much uh, linked to Rossi. I'm a little surprised to be honest that it was um, I guess around half the amount of of 2019, um, especially when you consider that one of the guys leading the champ or you know fighting for the championship this year is Pekka Banyaya on a Ducati um you've also got Aprilia doing really well you've also got Rossi's team doing pretty well I mean uh, Marini and Bezecchi had their best MotoGP races to date finishing inside the top six both were leading the race at certain uh, different points um and all Italian front row on Saturday yeah exactly exactly all Italian front row and Ebastianini is a name there as well but you know, none of these guys are Valentino Rossi. None of these guys have a personality which is as big or as, as grand as Valentino Rossi. And are these guys going to, I don't know, attract attract your average viewer who has no interest in motorcycles to the sport? Probably not, you would say. Um, I mean, they're all they're, they're they're cool guys. They're they're 
the nice guys, but I think this is maybe an issue that MotoGP is is sort of having at the moment. Um, the fact that there are no huge rivalries within the MotoGP class at, at present. You could say that about all of the guys fighting for the championship. They're all really nice. They're intelligent and articulate. But there's no one willing to play the bad boy. There's no one willing to play um, the villain. Or there's no one trying to stir the pot, essentially. And we know that these things all attract um, fans and they help to generate storylines about the sport. So um, you do wonder whether that is, uh, that's an issue at play as well. I mean, I was speaking to some, some photographers and some journalists that have been coming to Mugello uh, before you know, the Rossi phenomenon hit. And they were saying, you know, pre-Rossi, it wasn't that well attended. Um, you know, early 90s, just because of like the location, um, you know, you would be looking at similar attendances to what we had over the weekend. Um, it, it does seem that the, the Rossi phenomenon was responsible for that mad kind of atmosphere that we had there for 20 plus years. Uh, I think there's also the factor that um, MotoGP, motorcycle racing as a whole, seems to be much more of a of an individual sport so you've you, you tend to have fans of riders um yes ducati has fans and ducati is the really the only uh, sort of manufacturer that really has the kind of cult-like following that you get in uh, in f1 for ferrari sort of thing but even then it's not the same uh, it, it's not the same as in F1 where you've got uh, – it, it's a team sport. You know, like people love Lewis Ham – there might be fans of Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen or whoever. Um, but it's – you know, th there are there are Ferrari fans and there are McLaren fans. Um, that's almost unheard of in motorcycle racing with the, with the exception of Ducati. But like I say, it's still not the same. You know, like there are no – there are there are very few people who – will support, uh, uh, you know, Aprilia, whoever happens to be on the bike, or support Honda, whoever happens to be on the bike. You know, there are Fabio Quartararo fans. You see lots of people with, you know, number 20 hats on. Uh, or, and, uh, yeah, and like, you know, Casey Stoner's fans. You saw people with 27s on, uh, and they supported him in Ducati. They supported him Honda. That You know, they, they supported him wherever he was. It is a curious phenomenon. You'd think that people would be closer attached to the motorcycles, considering the fact that, you know, you could be inspired by watching Fabio Quartararo race in Michello and then go and buy yourself an R1 and have a mediocre of the same sensation that, you know, Quartararo is enjoying along the Michello home straight. Whereas your chances of going to buy a Mercedes and, um, you know, feel some kind of connection or empathy with Lewis Hamilton, say, are far more remote. So it's, it's strange that people are attracted to machinery or maybe it's just a brand thing. No, I, I think it's more like, uh, um, I think it's precisely because it's uh, um, more difficult to reach sort of thing that you get this team feeling. Do you know what I mean? Because, you know, a McLaren, whether the McLaren single-seater, like they sell sort of, uh, maybe hundreds or thousands I've got no idea but you know tiny numbers um, and so the ordinary fan is never going to own one but they might have uh, th that allows them if you like to feel it's like being in a uh, being a supporter of a football club you're supporting the you're, you're supporting the club you know, uh, you you like the players, but you're supporting the club. Um, and just because someone switches teams, you're not going to suddenly change your team allegiance. Um, I, I think the, the the fact that these cars are unattainable, that's what makes them so... Uh, it, 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 
adds a level of desirability, and that is why people support sort of the brand sort of thing. Whereas, you know, you could buy a Yamaha or a Suzuki or a Honda and end up um, uh, incredibly disappointed. Uh, Neil, he's talking about Formula One, and then he just veered into football. How many do you reckon? How many listeners do you reckon <laughs> we just lost in that sort of minute and a half spell? Yeah, anyone that was still listening, I think, has uh, just turned it off by himself. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, at this point, um, maybe it's a good moment to be, uh, unlike a Valentino Rossi fan club, uh, we'll be right back for more. And we'll also pay an entrance fee to be able to continue to talk to you. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're into the second part of this show, wrapping up Michello and looking ahead to the Grand Prix of Catalonia. We've uh, mentioned, of course, you know, the Ducati effect, uh, the Rossi minus effect, um, you know, the Autodromo, the Mugello. Uh, there was another big talking point, of course. Uh, we touched on it briefly earlier. Mark Marquez disappearing again from the MotoGP World Championship to have an operation. Actually, uh, the day that we're speaking, I believe he's going under the knife yeah. in Minnesota. No, I think he's flying uh, to the US today. Ah, uh, okay. So he's leaving on the Tuesday. Uh, well, it's safe to say in the next hours days um you know mark marquez will have a, another corrective operation on his right arm the fourth uh neil it's like it or not it's it's another tale of woes another chapter in this horrific kind of physical problem that mark's been dealing with when you add it also to the diplopia and the concussion but um it's still incredibly newsworthy isn't it um we haven't seen mark marquez anywhere near his best uh this season uh there, of course we had flashes last year um you know the saxon ring particularly but, uh, you know, I guess the big questions people have around this are, will Mark again be able to come back to the same level of performance? Will Honda still stick by him if it doesn't work? Uh, the, this latest kind of remedy for his situation does seem to carry some more heavier questions compared to the, the last few episodes. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, that those were questions that, that Mark couldn't even answer um, over the weekend whenever he was asked, when is he going to be returning? Um, but um, I think what you get um, from Mark, from even speaking to Alex Marquez on, on Sunday, was that there's a, a sense of almost relief that um, this procedure is going to be taking place because Mark hasn't been enjoying himself since he made his return um, at Portugal last year. It's been a tough time for him. Um, obviously, the results haven't been great. He hasn't been able to ride like he wants to on the bike. He is an awkward um, riding position and that hasn't really improved um, that much in the past, uh, what, 15 months or so. Um, and he was saying, you know, his daily life away from the track, it's not really a lot of fun. You know, he comes back from a race circuit. He has to stay at home for two or three days because he's completely exhausted by the time the racing's done. Um, it's basically just a, a sort of endless repetition, he said, of physio, painkillers, physio, painkillers. And in that current state, I think there was going to be maybe one more season or two more seasons of Mark Marquez racing. Um this now is a chance for him to um, at least get comfortable again, at least not have these issues with 
um, enormous pain, continued pain, having to save his energy through a race weekend. And he was saying on Sunday that if he can just get to a stage where he's not in pain all the time or he's not having to ration his riding over a race weekend, he'll be enjoying himself a lot more. And I think when you add the enjoyment to um, to Mark Marquez on a MotoGP race weekend, uh, the likelihood of uh, better results um, is, is certainly going to, going to increase dramatically. So, um, yeah, it, you know, at, at first you kind of thought like, wow, this is, this is really terrible, but like it does sound as though he is almost relieved to be having this operation. Um, and I think there was something that he said on Sunday. Um, he said, if the doctors in this American clinic in Minnesota, if they said to him, that there's an option to have this surgery. You can do it, but you know it's it's entirely up to you. Then it would have been a more difficult situation. But after these doctors analyzed his arm, I think they did a, um, I'm not sure what the technology was they used, but basically they did like a complete reading of the situation and, and looked at the joint and analyzed it very closely. They said, you need to have this operation. And we're kind of amazed that you've been doing what you have been doing, considering the, the sort of effect that is currently in place on your right arm. So I think from their reaction, it was like, you have to have this. And um, yeah, it seems as though um, it was a bit of a no-brainer. Um, he's not going to be winning the championship this year if he stayed on. He's not even going to be probably fighting for race wins if he stayed on. Um, he's not enjoying it. So, you know, it, it does make sense. Honda have been understanding. And um Maybe we won't see him again this year, but you do you do kind of have your fingers crossed that um, we'll we'll see him back next year because yeah, I think MotoGP needs him in 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 in, um, in in one respect. Well, that was my question also to both of you because uh, also the timing is important here. I mean, Mark had notification from the medical staff on Friday, uh, by which point, of course, he was already in Mugello. Uh, he had already gone through free practice, and there was talk of an extra operation already on Thursday in some of his uh, in his debrief. Um, of course, he went through the weekend. He admitted uh, he fulfilled a role almost like an employee. He came to do a job. He got on the bike. He, he went through the race. Uh, no talk of objective or whatever else. Um, and then his debrief on Sunday was extremely busy. Uh, you know, I think most of the assembled media that were available at the time knew that this would be the last time we'll probably hear from Mark in 2022, certainly in a race scenario. And, um, you know, I think you could... Uh, forgive the guy for some emotion on the cooling down lap like we said earlier uh you know i think he's as you brilliantly outlined neil i mean he's been through a hell of a lot but dave i mean is MotoGP gonna miss mark marquez i mean even a half functioning mark marquez was a a guy who was on the fringe of but potentially a podium battle you know as we saw in Jerez not so long ago uh is this going to be a big loss to, to this to the rest of this particular championship and and then you know what happens if say fingers crossed it doesn't happen but if the operation doesn't go great and you know he doesn't get any of that kind of uh former formability uh, back again if i can pronounce the word properly i mean yeah he's um he was still causing storylines because you know like one of the storylines every weekend is who uh, which victim is uh mark going to choose this time to follow and, <laughs> and, and, and try to get through to q2 and trying to do a qualifying so yeah he was he was sort of taking that role of, of a little bit of a villain on him so um yeah i mean the operation 
itself it's worth point sort of explaining what they're going to do basically what they're going to do is like break the because it's his right arm they're going to break it again um and uh, twist it because the, the the bone was growing back twisted so they're going to uh, twist it back straight uh, pin it again and then remove some of the material he had put in his shoulder at the end of 2019 um to stop his arm from dislocating all the time um that was restricting his mobility and he needs his mo mobility back so they're going to they're, that's what they're going to do um they had to wait until now for the bone to heal fully it's now strong enough for it to be uh, uh you know for, for them to attempt this operation uh, it was also interesting he it, he let something slip in his debrief when he was asked about you know sort of uh, well how long is the operation going to be um he thought it was going to be uh, he thought he was asking you know how long is the re the recovery period going to be and he sort of said uh, he'd asked the doctors when can i be racing again and they basically sort of said if that's your attitude don't bother coming um it, it it's that I think is a sign of just how serious this is. There is uh, this operation is not unusual. They do it quite a lot with uh, certain birth deformities um, to sort of straighten bones. So the, the the success rate is fairly good. It should he should be able to come back um, uh, at full strength, and it will allow him to ride the way that he wanted to again. And as Neil said. Literally, we would have seen him for another year or two. He's not here to ride around and sort of, you know, to, to be battling to hopefully get a place in the top ten. He he's he's there to win races and to win championships. Um, will MotoGP miss him? Uh, yes, but it will survive. Um, I mean, we are just starting. I mean, you know, Mugello was the start of or not the start of, and Mugello, we once again saw the championship really start to form. You know, it's Fabio versus Pecco versus Aleish, uh, a little bit of Enea Bastianini thrown in. Uh, there, there's a, there, there is now a, a clear battle starting to form, and I think that is going to be good for the uh, the championship. We're going, we're, going to, we're going to start to have a picture where fans can start, can start to pick sides. Uh, Neil, poor Stefan Bradl. He probably just wants to crack on with his media and television work, but now he's um, having to fill in once again on HRC. Uh, he's not being allowed to slide gently and gracefully into retirement, is he? But, you know, with the increased speculation around Paul Spargaro and his future HRC, um, you know, it's going to be another tough end to the season for Honda, isn't it? It certainly is, Ed, yeah. Um, I mean, it's going to be almost a write-off, Um when is it time to start looking towards 2023? I mean, you've got a guy um, in the Repsol Honda squad that is probably going to leave at the end of this year. Um, when Paul Spargaro was asked about this on Saturday, he said, "You know, if Honda, you know, if Honda trusts me enough, maybe I'll I'll be able to help them with uh, some development." And um, that kind of gave an indication that uh, he maybe doesn't feel like he's being valued or trusted by them at the moment. Um, it's it's just going to be a tough time. Um, we we know that uh, the the bike has kind of lost some of the the Honda DNA. Um, it has some issues turning, um, and you know results this year just haven't really been good, despite that early uh, early season optimism. So, um, I, yeah, it looks like it could be a, a sort of twenty twenty esque um, end to the season um, for Honda, and uh, you know no. Uh, no real, 
light on the horizon, I guess you could say. I think what this what this news does do, um, if they hadn't been doing it already, is really crystallize just how much they need to have a really top name in the Repsol Honda squad next year in case Mark can come back. I mean, they really need to really, as as if, you know, the, the, the past two years have probably led them to think about this, but this should be another kind of reminder that um, they do need to start making preparations for possibly a, a post-Mark Marquez um, MotoGP. Um, so, you know, I would say this would place a even higher emphasis on signing someone like possibly Joanne Mir uh, to go into that team for next year, um, just in case, you know, Mark's return is delayed. Yeah, of course, Honda, probably more than anybody else, facing a period of instability, when it, certainly when it comes to 2023 over the rider lineup. Um, Ayagora's podium in Moto2 means he's now equal lead in the championship. Still questions, the jury completely out um, of the building, in fact, over whether Agora has the, the chops to move straight into the MotoGP class. I'm sure there's people on both sides of the fence there when it comes to that argument. Uh, but then also... Alex Marquez, um, if you have a look, he's sitting 18th in the World Championship standings. By his own admission in his media debrief, the results haven't been good enough. Um, you know, he was self-aware to the point where he said, you know, my job is in future HRC is is in the balance. Um, it's hard. You can see the LCR structure having a complete overhaul. Um, and if Paul Espargaro also moves out, it could be pretty shaky for Honda with only less than a year with a brand new motorcycle, um, having to get three new recruits in and having Mark potentially unfit until the end of the calendar year. So it's um, there's a lot of uh, discussions and, and head scratching going on, I'm sure, with um, Alberto Puig and HRC senior management. But um, moving on to your talking point, Dave, uh, you know you were you wanted to talk a bit about the overtaking um, issue again in MotoGP, which is still particularly hot. Um, but it seemed to ease slightly thanks to Mugello's um, wonderful mix of corners and, and cambers. Yeah, I mean, the we've been talking about the fact that there, there isn't any overtaking in MotoGP or is very difficult to overtake uh, precisely because of this, you know, been over it, the, the, the stress on the front tyre, uh, stress created by the ride height devices, by uh, the, the aerodynamics. Uh, and the fact that Michelin wants to test their new front tyre, but they can't test their new front tyre um, because th- there's not very much testing. And even when there is testing, the factories don't want to test it. Um, so we're sort of in this bind. But then we found we come to Mugello. It's also a, a function of the, of the nature of the circuits. Um, what you can't overtake is at... Uh, where you can't overtake are stop and go circuits, places where you are um, coming out of slow corners uh, and ex- uh, accelerating in the slipstream. Um, that is causing you know, the, the the front tire to overheat, and then uh, you, you, because you're braking for, for tight corners, you can't get close enough. What you saw at Mugello is there are uh, sort of two factors which help. One of them is the the, the fact that, that you know, it is a long straight and the fastest straight on the calendar, um, but you're coming off of a fast corner. Uh, that means you're accelerating from, you know, you're, you start accelerating sort of 130, 140, 150 kilometers an hour. You're not doing it from 60 kilometers an hour like you are at, uh, at places like Le Mans. Um, 
that means that if you get in the slipstream, you can get there. And I think it was Luca Marini who said, you know, uh, the difference here is that the Yamaha could overtake me. Um, that's because the slipstream works so very different. You can actually exit the corner right on someone's tail instead of getting dropped by them on uh, on corner exit. And the other thing is, as you were saying, that combination of left-right corners a proper motorcycle track should have combination corners it should have one corner leading into another where you uh, where you can either attack in the first corner or in the second corner where you have to make choices about which corner you're going to you're going to defend and if you're in front you have to decide am i going to take the ideal line or am i going to sacrifice the ideal line to try to defend um and either way you lose um uh, both as an attacker and as a uh, uh, and as a defender because you you have to sacrifice one corner to get past in the uh, in the other and if you do that you stand the risk of of, of losing out again so th- that really Really helps, and also the, the the kind of corners, the kind of flowing corners, where you are not actually. Yes, you are out breaking other people, but you're it, the fast way into the corner isn't on the brakes. The fast way into the corner is finding the appropriate corner speed, and you can either be fast in the first part of the corner or fast in the second part of the corner, uh, and that's allowing people to get past. And that, you know that what makes for great battles. Places like Phillip Island, places like uh, Assen. Bruno, unfortunately, you know, Bruno was such a fantastic motor, uh, motorcycle racing track for exactly the same reason. You could, you could sort of uh, flick right, flick, flick left. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens in Barcelona because I think Barcelona also has some of that sort of character. There are places where it flows more, where you can sort of line up one corner for the next. What about um, after Barcelona, Dave? Because we're going to move to Assen and then, of course, Saxon Ring before the summer break. Saxon Ring, where the riders are on the edge of the tyre for so long throughout the lap, um, you know, the shortest lap also in the championship. Do you think the overtaking subject is something that's going to become very hot again uh, in the next couple of tracks? Or could it potentially ease just because, you know, as the season goes on, of course, teams learn more, they develop more, they come up with more technical solutions, as we've seen for example, of like KTM, they seem to have made a little bit of a breakthrough, um, you know, in terms of getting the RC16 fixed, certainly for racing in Brad Binder's case. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, what they did for the RC for the KTM was they took the side pods off, uh, side pods off, which allow makes the bike a little bit more um, uh, agile. Uh, it, it means you can sort of turn in a little bit. You know, they have a problem turning the bike, and the, the, this helps with turning the bike. Uh, I, I mean, Saxon Ring has always been a track where it's difficult to pass, but it's still a place where basically what you do is you fire it down the hill, and if you if you're brave and stupid, what you can do is uh, dive up the inside, but then you sacrifice the final corner. So you come down the waterfall um, into turn twelve, and then there's uh, then you lose out of turn thirteen. Um, so yeah, there's there's those sort of places. Assen, I think you know, Assen is fantastic for overtaking, precisely because uh, that last, especially that last section. One of, I mean, yeah, all right, I'm biased, but uh, it is still <laughs> one of the best sections on uh, uh, on the calendar coming through uh, the Ramshook uh, and into the into the GT chicane because there are multiple lines through there, and you can choose your uh, attack. Again, it's about the ability to or it's about forcing riders to choose where they're going to be fast and if 
the rider in front has to choose where he's going to be fast. That gives the rider behind options. So we're not going to be talking about there. Uh, Silverstone, again, is a fantastic flowing track. Uh, we're going to be talking about it again at Austria. We're going to be talking about it again at, uh, at Misano. Uh, we'll probably be talking or might be talking about it again at, um, uh, Aragon, Mutegi, uh, Thailand. Um, we'll get to Philip Island. It'll be fantastic. Uh, uh, I think also, well, no, I think we'll be talking about it again at Sepang and definitely at Valencia. Uh, you know, Valencia is going to be an absolute procession. Um, so yes, this is not a subject that is going to go away until we get a new Michelin front tyre or until they ban ride height devices. Man, less said about Valencia, the better, that's for sure. <laughs> and I'm glad you you wanted to talk about the the attributes of the last section at Ascende because the first one we is better not spoken yeah. about, it has to be said. Yeah. Also, um, I think you... Uh, you know what, what we were talking about at um, <clears throat> at Le Mans. I mean, Le Mans is pretty much a track that is designed for the Ducati because obviously we know that their ride height device is probably the most sophisticated on the grid, along with maybe Aprilia's. We know Ducati is ahead of the rest in terms of aerodynamics, and it's just got the kind of the power um, and the braking ability um, to be almost unbeatable at a track where you're coming out of slow corners, accelerating heavily, more or less in a straight line, and then breaking um, heavily into another sort of hairpin. Um, you know, what Mugello had, or has, obviously, is uh, a lot of fast-flowing corners, which play to the strengths of, you know, some of Ducati's rivals, like, you know, the Aprilia and uh, the Yamaha in particular, as we saw with Fabio Quattararo's uh, numerous uh, aggressive overtakings. Um, and, um, you know, when we go to tracks which are, are perhaps... Um, difficult, I think, for Ducati, then we are less likely to see processional or racing of the kind of processional nature that we've had um, at, uh, at possibly Jerez and then uh, also at um, also at Le Mans. Um, and, you know, historically, Assen and the Saxon have been the two most difficult tracks on the calendar for Ducati, you know, so that is possibly the place where um, they can be barged out of the way and um, it's not such a it's not such an ordeal to try and get by. Dave, do you have a theory on the reason behind the procrastination by the MSMA for ride height devices? Does there seem to be quite a build-up of you know when these devices are going to be scrapped from the bikes? But is there potentially a larger discussion going on? Well, the big discussion is the fact that GKT is absolutely dead set against them being scrapped, and they have eight bikes on the grid, uh, and the other up-and-coming factory, Aprilia, have a really have a ride height device that is working really, really well, and they don't want to lose it either. Um, if the MSMA, I mean, if the Grand Prix Commission wanted to, they could propose. A, um, uh, they can propose to scrap ride height devices and if they have one factory on their side then they could force it through because there's a majority vote from the four parties in the MSMA which is FIM, ERTA and, uh, uh, and Dorna uh, and the MSMA obviously um, however it, I mean just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean that you should do it immediately they need to get the factories on side they need to prepare if we do see a, a ban i mean it's definitely not next year probably definitely not in 2024 it might be 2025 2026 um this is going to need a lot of discussion a lot of preparation um i spoke to one person over the uh, uh at Mugello uh, about it and i said you know well obviously you don't want to just go and ban them because it would upset 
uh, it would upset Ducati. It would, it would upset the MSMA. And he said, we will do whatever we want to. Um, we're not going to take them into account that much. If, if we think we need to do it, we will do it. Um, the question is, do they think they need to do it just yet? Do they need to keep people on board? Uh, Gigi Delina is getting ever more irritated by the tire, the fact that every time he comes up with a technology, uh, the uh, someone steps in to ban it. Um, I have an interview with Gigi Delina at, um, uh, at Barcelona. One of the things I'm going to ask him about is well, how come you keep on? Why is it that Ducati keep on coming up with these things specifically? They are they do seem to have just a brilliant. Uh, they're very good at inventing new things. So yeah, looking forward to that. But yeah, I, I, it can be banned, but it's going to take a while. I asked Giabatti, uh, Paolo Giabatti, actually, the sporting director of Ducati course, that question on Sunday, Mugello, Dave, and he said that one of the strengths of DG is he has a very young, dynamic engineering team and he's really open to ideas. So somebody comes up with a, a plan or some sort of innovation um, and there's a scientific, I guess, like anybody, you know, there's a scientific justification for it, then they really go ahead with it. Um, so it's uh, it seems to be about Delinga's ability to harness um, the strengths of his team, really, and of course, Ducati's ability to put things into motion extremely quickly. Um, Alessia Spargaro said that one of the reasons the Aprilia is so competitive this year was the work on aerodynamics. Uh, you know, he said that they're able to use one of the most advanced wind tunnels in Europe, um, as we mentioned on the Paddock Pass note show. Uh, you know, Aprilia also able to count on F1 style. There we are, Dave, we're talking about cars again, <laughs> F1 style, um, you know, uh, precision and engineering. So, it's paid off in terms of the Aprilia. And did anybody see, you know, we saw um, a rear spoiler, the, um, the Aprilia mechanics having somewhere to dry their socks, it seems, in between sessions on the back of the uh, the race bike. I do wonder when we'll see that coming into play because let's not forget that the wings, um, the original MotoGP wings were styled uh, in terms of safety because they were essentially like flying knives when motorcycles were coming through the packs. I, I do wonder if uh, you know the rear spoilers might have some sort of um, short-lived existence in MotoGP because of their shape and form. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it will. It, it was interesting hearing uh, Alessio Spargaro. Alessio was saying that um, he liked it because it gave, it did actually have uh, uh, an effect on the back, and it gave him a little bit more rear grip, a little bit more load on the rear tire. Um, uh, again, it's. I won't say poor rulemaking, but it's a it's a it's a loophole. It's a gap. The rear of the bike is not regulated. The, the, the there are uh, there's a strict description of the aero body, uh, which is basically the fairing the fairing part uh, back to sort of you know near the exhausts and the and a separate part of the mudguard. But there's nothing nothing about the tail. And that little spoiler, it wasn't just the spoiler. There was also like a sort of a, a a fluted tail there with little upstanding wings and they were take you know taking the 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 actual sort of wing you know uh, it reminds me of uh, i think some of these massive limousines have this same sort of you know the flying wing thing on the, the back. boomerang yes the boomerang and yeah, also exactly. this the tail section dave was so they could fit the pizza box on there better <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yes that's right yeah that's right i know you it was about piadini sized so uh, yeah it was very good it was all a bit Vauxhall Nova uh, cruising around your local town centre uh, on a Sunday night with uh, ah. a stupid uh, exhaust attached to it, wasn't it? Yes, indeed. It was yeah, very lowered suspension. Yes, indeed. It was very, it was very Ford Anglia. 
Well, we're going to make a call for another pizza because we've only had 18 over the course of the Mugello weekend. Uh, so we're, we're having withdrawal symptoms and we'll be right back to talk about our winners and losers and also a little bit about the Circuit de Catalunya, Circuit de Barcelona, Catalunya, sorry, right after this. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at Renthal.com to find the perfect bend. Welcome back to the final section of this show. Dave, over to you. Who is your winner from the Grand Prix of Italy? My winner, surprisingly, is Mark Marquez, um, despite the fact that he had possibly one of the most miserable weekends of his life. Uh, but getting the call from the doctors meant that there was a, you know, a, a path forward, a path to try to improve his situation. Um, his situation right now is hopeless because he can't ride the way that he wants to and he's in constant pain. Um, the operation, whether it succeeds or not in allowing him to ride again, but what it should do at the very least is mean that he's not in such pain all through his normal life. He, he will get some some kind of a normal life back um, if it succeeds and the and he's able to ride the way that he wants to again, then there's a chance that he can actually start winning races again and, and vying for championships. So, I mean, this for me was like light at the end of the tunnel for Mark Marquez and it's a very, very long tunnel and the line is very, very faint, but it Faint, but it, but it's there. there. There's a chance again. My winner. Um, I'm going to give a quick shout out to some of the rookies for personal best uh, Grand Prix results uh, around. You know, technically one of the more trickier tracks on the calendar. Uh, but I'm going to pick Brad Binder and KTM starting 16th on the grid, rising all the way up to seventh. Uh, you know, he, the South African admitted that he could even have pushed even well harder uh, to, and he was right on the back of the battle really for the entry into the top five towards the end of the Grand Prix. Uh, it was at this circuit. Sorry, Dave, you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, what about Maverick Vinales then? I mean, he finished, he started, was yeah. it 21st or something and ended up uh, uh, almost 12th, but uh, it was a very Maverick performance. Uh, he was the fastest rider on the on the, on the the track for the last, I think, four or five laps. I'm sure Brad and Maverick are also very frustrated by their <laughs> now well-established MOs of having to do all the work um, from the wrong end of the grid. But uh, I think in the case of Binder and KTM, it was it was a step forward of their track where they took a podium finish last year um, in the hands of Miguel Oliveira. And actually, the Portuguese had a pretty fine race as well in ninth, considering the fact that they still can't get their head around qualification. And let's be honest, the conditions for Q1, Q2 were in crazily impossible to figure out. Uh, I think riders and teams had a matter of minutes and seconds just to make a correct choice uh, for tyres, slicks, uh, wets, um, and to push for a lap time. So... It wasn't easy at all. Uh, I think it was a pretty good day, a uh, pretty good race day for for the KTM crew. Neil, who was your victor? Yeah, I think that's a good shot. Ad Binder was magnificent. Nine places he gained on the first lap alone, which is just insane. Um, we don't ever see Maverick Finales do that, do we? Um, even though Binder regularly struggles with qualifying. Um, my big victor, I mean, 
tempted to say Aprilia because coming into Sunday, so much of the weekend was sort of the, the, the narrative of the weekend, if you like, was Aprilia. They obviously signed RNF to become their satellite team um, for the next two years, at least with an option for two after that. The first time I think in MotoGP history, it'll have um, a satellite squad. Obviously, it re-signed uh, Alicia Spargro and Maverick Vinales for the next two seasons. Um, and, you know, Alicia Spargro on the podium once again. Um, it's now becoming normal to think of Spargro as one of the top names in the class. And I just want to say that, that that is not normal. Like, when have we ever said in Alicia Spargro's career that he is one of the top names in the class, that this should not be taken as the kind of norm now? I, I still think this is quite a remarkable thing. However, I'm not going to go for a I'm going to go for uh, the Mooney VR46 team because I thought um, Buzeki and Marini were, were super impressive on Sunday. Um, both of them led the race at certain points. I think Marini led the first lap. Buzeki then led, led after lap two until lap eight. Um, they were they were magnificent, um, regularly fighting with the likes of Quartararo, Alexis Bargaro, Johan Zarco. Um, and uh, there was an interesting comment from Alexis Bargaro in the press conference afterwards where he said that um, he thought young riders kind of knew um, at the front of the field, at their home Grand Prix, there's going to be some mistakes eventually, but he said that they, they were faultless, basically, him trying to follow them he didn't really notice any mistakes at all and he had to make a couple of quite, uh, I think, desperate lunges to eventually get by them. So the fact that they finished, what, I think, fifth and sixth, Pizzecchi fifth, uh, Marini sixth, and they were three seconds off the win at their home Grand Prix, um, I thought those were a pair of breakout performances. And Celestino Vietti is still leading the Moto2 Championship even though he had retired. So, you know, double win. Neil, I would love to live in your world where everyone's a winner. It seems like a very <laughs> shiny, you know, reassuring, cozy place. It's um, it's, it's great. I, I, am I a winner in your world? Uh, you're my editor, so therefore, yes, sir. We've, the hesi- we've the seen hesitation wa- concern me. Yeah, we've seen your wife. You are definitely a winner in life. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, oh, if we're talking about that, then I'm, you know, punching well above my weight. Um, yeah, so is that's, that's beyond dispute. Yeah, I think all three of <laughs> yeah, us are. Yeah, Dave yeah, as well. I think all three of us are, are punching well above our weight. Yes. Yes, the better halves. Of course, when there are winners, there are people we have to feel some sympathy for. Um, you know, I'm not going to come to you, Neil, because um, clearly you're struggling for anybody to be critical about. Um, <laughs> you usually criticize me for all... being overly cynical. So, uh, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't understand right, what right. this kind of sea change is. I think it's just that you, you just, you've been in Tuscany, having fine food, good company. And maybe it's just like the post Liverpool Champions League disappointment as well. I just think. Do we really have to mention you know, that? You, you, <laughs> yeah. I know, mate. I'm sorry, but I'm just trying to justify this, you know, surge in positivity. We're, and that that's, that's, must be the root of it. The, the, the explanation. I did enjoy watching the match review on Saturday, I, I have oh, to say. It was. Um, it was not an enjoyable experience for yourself, but it was... Uh... Yeah, I can assure you that feeling is not mutual. Um, yeah, I, I think that the explanation for this positivity is is incredibly simple. It's it's Tuesday. Um, it's not Monday morning <laughs> or Sunday night. And therefore, you know, I've had a chance to recover my thoughts, recover my energy. So, um, yes. But yes, sorry, getting on our, our losers for the weekend, Dad, you were saying. Well, we were going to record next week's podcast on Monday morning, so don't make people turn <laughs> off already. Uh, yeah, actually, I'm going to skip you, Neil. Uh, Dave, I'm tempted to say I know who your loser is from Mugello because as soon as Marco Bezzecchi sat on his motorcycle and put on a pair of sunglasses <laughs> that looked like he'd basically taken the visor off his helmet and placed it on his face, um, I, I kind of figured that you know there was either some 
some scorn or just a shaking of the head that you you did not approve but um you know sunglass fashion aside who uh and actually you know to people listening to this show we're going to put a very interesting picture on our twitter channel of dave um taking some pizza i think on friday evening in Mugello, where he actually tried on some of our colleague comat gps oakley's um you know just to show that dave you can pull off the look yeah it, it's not that bad yeah i mean i um uh, i'm not sure that having a um uh, a manufacturer of welding visors is uh, is is a good look for motor gp but um uh yeah i mean no and speaking Bezeki Bezeki has been has been really really impressive he's just been very impressive all this season he had a great race uh for me the loser has to be apart from me for um uh, allowing a picture of myself to be taken with a uh, some of those <laughs> Sunglasses on. The, the 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 loser has to be Yamaha because um, I mean they're leading the championship. What are you talking yes, about? Yes, and they're probably going to win the championship. But um, and they're uh, the loser. Yes, and they're the loser because it's not Yamaha who are leading. It's not Yamaha who are leading the championship. It's Fabio Quartararo. I mean, it's it's very uh, Ducati 2007 or even Ducati 2009, 2010. There is one rider who can get this thing around the corner, uh, around the track fast, and he is doing. Um, he's going to extraordinary measures to do that. Uh, Franco Morbidelli was quite interesting that he said that you know Quattararo is able to take more risk than the other Yamaha riders because he understands the package better. He's you know he spent more time on this 2020 bike, um, and obviously the other riders are all sort of a bit peculiar in their own way. Darren Binder's a, a rookie straight from Moto Three. Andrea Dovizioso has spent the last uh, uh, three centuries riding a Ducati, uh, and Franco Morbidelli is is coming back from injury. So there's there's lots of sort of complications, but I mean. When you find yourself as a manufacturer with four bikes on the grid and one rider is winning and the other three are nowhere, then it means you you have serious problems that need to be addressed. And um, I, I think losing two satellite bikes is, is bad for Yamaha because they really need all the data that they can get. Um, but at the moment, the other three, I mean, Fabio Quattararo is quite brutal about this. He's saying, you know, I'm not worried about losing the, 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 uh, the satellite bikes because no one else is providing any useful data anyway. So, yeah, I, that I think is a huge problem. They have to sign Fabio Quattararo um, because just because he's the only rider uh, winning um, and they don't have anyone else who can ride the bike. And they, that's something they need to fix really urgently. Uh, my loser is a quick one. Um, you guys know my affection for the Martinator. Uh, this was the, the third Grand Prix this season where he scored points. But the fact that he's now going to have an arm operation, um, you know, this was actually one of the weaknesses that we associated with Martin preseason when we were talking earlier this year on the podcast. You know, his uh, ability or inability to keep healthy, to keep fully fit could be something that holds him back. Um, a degree of sympathy for handling the GP2020 uh, 22 engine you know he's uh, continually suffering with um poor rear grip so he does have a, a mediocre of um sympathy for that one uh you know trying to develop ducati's latest configuration of that motor but you know martin went from a position of being the shoe-in for the factory seat to maybe being ousted by bastianini who also had you know his uh, his own woes in Mugello and that colorfully um livered grassini ducati uh, so I just think, uh, the, again, like Mar Marquez, we were talking about earlier, there are questions over Jorge Martin and, you know, how he's going to feel coming back from this sleeping right arm syndrome that he's suffering. Uh, Neil, over to you. 
Uh, Suzuki ad um, because it's just been an absolute disaster. The uh, the bo the bottom or the rear end is uh, falling out of it, so to speak, um, since their shock decision or the sh the the shock uh, revelation that um, they're going to be withdrawing from the class at the end of this year. Um, they've had a double DNF in France. They've now had a double DNF in Mugello, um, and I, I guess Juan Mir in particular, I think, is the is the one that um, we we kind of have a bit of concern over. I mean. Um, you know, Mir was just, I think Rins had the chance to even, you know, get himself inside the top 10 um, at the end of that race. But I mean, Mir was just, uh, he was nowhere all weekend. Um, and I think he crashed out of 16th place with no real signs of, of, of being able to climb the order. Um, I think morale must be pretty low in that garage. Uh, we mentioned on the show on Sunday night that um, no one in the team has had any official word from the factory and I'm sure all of us guys we've worked in jobs before where you feel that your work has been underappreciated by those in higher up positions and it's only natural to react in that situation to think well you know this is this is disgraceful and you know F you basically um, you know I don't think Suzuki have handled the you know that the, the factory um, has handled itself in uh, in any kind of decent way um and you know how it expects its uh, its model gp effort to, to function without any kind of communication or explanation is just beyond me so it's tough to see how these guys are are going to end the season well i mean they were leading the team's championship at the time of the uh, the announcement they've now fallen to fourth in that series mir is now i think 10th overall rins is now sixth they're 53 points and 66 points respectively off the top of the championship so um yeah, i mean it's really hard to see either of them fighting for a championship which looked um i mean you know we were talking at the after the the first flyaways of the year that um you know it was going to be a shoe and that both of them were in the title fight yeah i mean it, the fact that the team has heard nothing about has no, heard nothing from suzuki suzuki hq uh, i think it perfectly illustrates the reason that they are leaving and the lack of commitment to racing from suzuki senior management yeah, absolutely. And you have to sympathize with somebody like Alex Rins, who we were talking about as a, a rejuvenated championship contender. And, uh, you know, now he's also probably the most stark victim of that decision. Uh, Suzuki guys, um, you know, haven't won this century at the next circuit we're going to this weekend, the Circuit de Barcelona, yes, Catalonia, the 31st this century. That's this century. No, that's the last year of the previous century. No, no it's, it's the, the first, first year, year of this century. century. Let's not let's let's not rehash this whole oh, uh, in uh, the motor motor GP four stroke era. Okay, can I get use that one? Yes. yes. Am I allowed now? Yes. Right. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, do feel free to interrupt me again if I'm ever you know technically wrong on something. We will. Thank you. Uh, a fantastic Grand Prix, Neil, because um, you and I can both sleep at home, uh, our respective homes, of course, uh, separately. Uh, you know, Dave, you'll be coming in. Um, I'm pleased to say I'm looking out the window now. The weather is amazing. Um, I hope it's going to stay that way. It's going to be a hot one. Uh, I've got a little quiz question for you. First of all, do we like this racetrack very quickly? Yes. 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 Very good. Uh, concise answers, gentlemen. Um, four brands have won the last four Grand Prix, which, which with, uh, excluding Miguel Oliveira for last year, who are the other riders? Uh, Fabio Quattuaro. For Yamaha in 2020, very good. 2019 was... 2018 was Jorge Lorenzo on a Ducati, and 2019 was... Mm, Mark on a Mark, Honda? Mark Marquez. Very good, excellent. 
And then uh, Ducati took their first win in 2003. In yes, well, his first pole position, I believe, as well, of uh, Loris Caparossi, uh, potentially. Casey Stoner also victorious in 2007. Yep. So a real mixed bag, you know. It's not like we're heading to a particularly strong track for any 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 particular motorcycle. Um, you know, going on what's happened in Mugello, are we looking again at the likes of Bagnaia and and Quattararo, Of course, Neil, this is where he took his first win in Moto Two. Uh, I want to say 2018. Am I am I right there? That's still in in a particular time period, right? Yes. Good stuff. And there's two other riders actually in the MotoGP class who've taken their first Grand Prix wins at Montmelo. Can you name them? No. Uh, in MotoGP. Darren Binder. Darren Binder took a oh, Moto3 yeah. win. Yeah. His first and only one. And also Luca Marini in Moto2. 2020. So there you go. Feel free to, you know, quickly look it up and prove me wrong again, Neil, because I do <laughs> like that exercise in the Paddock Pass podcast. Um, I'm pretty sure Marini... Had one in twenty eighteen. Ad, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to burst okay. the bubble. He, he's a he's a previous winner at the Circuit de Catalunya. Yeah, exactly. Can I get away with that one? Yes, you can. Yeah, but I think his first oh, Grand Prix right. victory was in um, Malaysia. Yeah, the day that Pekka won the Model Two Championship. No, but what I meant to say that was his first win at the Circuit de Catalunya <coughs> of a series of wins he's bound to get in the future <laughs> in twenty twenty. <2020. laughs> Did I not mention that part? Okay. <laughs> must have, must have slipped your mind. Yes, apologies for the inaccuracy on this show, everybody. Um, and at that point, I think we should bring it to to an end. Don't forget to do your fantasy league predictions. Um, already done mine. Me is, oh, he's already? Yeah, because, I mean, like, uh, it was Because you took Mark Marquez out, basically. No, I took I took Franco Morbidelli out. Um, and I took Franco Morbidelli and Juan Mir out and swapped them for, I think, Alessio Spargaro and Marco Bezzecchi. So um, that looks like an upgrade to me. Yeah, not not bad work at all there, Dave. I'm glad to see you getting into it. There's more now more than 300 people in our Paddock Pass podcast fantasy league, so keep joining us. At the end of the season, we'll, we we will be giving some prizes away, um, you know, from friends at Fly Racing, Rental Street, and potentially Oakley as well. Uh, good news for you, Dave. Uh, we'll be putting <laughs> that picture on our Twitter feed, of course. Um, is there any? Well, we mentioned predictions, so we're not going to bother, are we? But guys, do check out our Paddock Pass podcast note show. Just join up to Patreon. You can join at various tiers to get access to insight, information, interviews, whatever else we're going to be bringing you over the course of the days through the Grand Prix weekends. Um, and also, if you have any feedback, anything you want to know, anything that you'd like to see us talk about, any ways you'd like to see us improve for the Paddock Pass podcast, then also send us a comment because we do read them and we try to squeeze them in where we can. Uh, Dave, best of luck with your travels from the Netherlands back to Catalonia. Thank you. Uh, Neil and I will not have to worry about any planes or travel for this week. And, um, well, we'll be back again on Friday to talk about things that have happened in Barcelona. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. If I start eating a tiramisu, then you know that I'm uh, to be rescued.